1: Eric Estlin Purvis, filmmaker. I produce, write, direct, finance, uh, feature films, independent feature films. Um, you probably have seen uh, The Kids Are All Right, which won a Golden Globe for Best Picture. You probably have seen uh, The Ten with Paul Rudd, Winona Ryder, Jessica Alba, One Fast Mover, I'm Gone. Directed Parker Posey in The Love Guide and working on. Uh, a Davy Crockett feature film that will be set
0: and shot here in East Tennessee. Derek Purvis, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad uh, you could come on. It's uh, been a long time coming, coming for me because I initially met you at a film event in downtown Nashville where I got to sit in on a discussion, a debate you were having with another independent filmmaker in town about the right way to finance and develop a a feature film. So I'd love to start there, and we'll jump around a little bit in this conversation, but I, I would love to start there and just say, what is, in your opinion, the correct way to finance a feature film if you were speaking to, let's say, a first or second time independent filmmaker?
1: Well, I, would, I guess I would uh, ask you to be more specific about the question. Um, depends on what the end goal is, I guess. Um, but I, I always start when people ask me sort of a general opinion like that. I sort of start with a simple truth about where we're at uh, in the production world. The bar to entry to making a really high-quality piece of content whatever you want to call it, an art or film or movie, or you know, uh, is super low. Like the technology literally is on our phones now, you know. And and I would say that really get focused on um, being good at the craft of storytelling in the long-form space, if that's what you're trying to do. And I wouldn't worry as much about, uh, you know, Uh, larger budget stuff if you're getting started. If you've been doing some stuff, then I would tell you that, um, you know, there are three, uh, you know, finance instruments that you should know about when making a film. Of course, equity, which means a cash investment. Somebody's investing in the movie, giving you money, expecting a return and then a piece of the revenue. Um, You have debt, which is structured against, um, sales activities and carve outs and other, uh, contracts that you can, you can create a debt class around. Uh, and then you have the soft money, which is state and federal level tax incentives and, and, you know, selling those certificates or rebates, whatever the case may be, um, you know, the rights to those ahead of the time. And so if you use all three of those finance tools, um, you should, be able to, uh, get the equity requirement for your movie as close to zero as possible. Um, and, and to me, that's, you know, and just on the back of a napkin, a sort of spitball of, of the three things I would focus on. People tend to, to come at film from many different perspectives and trying to serve a lot of, you know, masters, whether it's the foreign sales company or the domestic distributors, or trying to get, talent or agents or sell it to a producer or whatever the things are Um, and really at the essence uh, if you're going to make a movie you want to understand your production plan an exact uh, sort of strategy built on actually executing all the shots that you need and determine a budget based on that not on what a sort of market perception might be or um, trying to frame your film as a particular type of movie. Um, and so if you, if you combine those sort of those things together, you get a really smart, uh, creative way to, to execute your film. You, you don't let, uh, traditional barriers block you because of your own perception and, and find, uh, ways to get, things done and and then employ those three tools you should be in pretty good shape to make content and you know the real upside about all that is uh content is in such high demand you know Mm -hmm. there's there's uh you know endless streaming platforms and and there's still cables still hanging on and all kinds of ways and so i guess uh, if you ask me what's the best way to think about financing a movie, it would be to sit down and first um, get a really great play, detailed production plan on how you'll execute on all your shots. Whether that's you know, using $20 handmade models and doing forced perspective uh, to, you know, to do certain things, or if it's um, you know, whatever those old school tricks might be to sort of do that.
0: Yeah. And 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 forgive me for the lack of specificity on it. I, there's so much to dig in there. I, you, you touched on a lot of great points. I think a lot of independent filmmakers try to go out and do the equity piece and forget mm-hmm. about the soft dollar. Well, they don't forget about it, but it's secondary. It's just like, okay, well, I've already decided I'm going to shoot my film in the city. Whatever the rebate is, is what it is. And, uh, they don't think about the debt financing part that almost never comes up. Um, why, uh, why would you say the (laughs) equity piece is, is probably the, the, the least strong or, or why should the equity piece be near zero as you mentioned?
1: Well, then you're allowing really the market to tell you the, the perceived value of your film. You're operating on basic business principles that serve every industry in the world, for example, uh, you wouldn't build a skyscraper without having first inked contracts with several anchor tenants for that skyscraper, mm-hmm. and and it's very similar here. You know, to just go make a movie, raise ten million, make a movie, and then go try to sell it is exactly like building a skyscraper and then walking around trying to fill it. And so, uh, you know, the the real power is um, by going through the iterations of foreign sales, pitching it to domestic, you're getting a lot of feedback and market information about your film. You may have to adjust your budget up or down
0: based on the feedback from the people who are going to sell it. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. And I've Feel like we've been saying that for a very long time, and so just to hear it, you know, sometimes it's the messenger, Derek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, to, so to hear you say it with the success you've had, I think is super valuable. But it it it, it stands to reason, and it's a, it's a great great point. Um, when you talked about making sure you can shoot everything, you, you mentioned that a few times. Is that to you how you prove the value and feasibility of your film to? let's say, um, uh, the market, if you will?
1: Yeah. In, here's the, the real transformation in, in idea to completed project is in the execution of the script during production. You're either going to get it, you know, uh, on a hard drive, in the old days I would have said you're either going to get it on film or not, but we don't really shoot film anymore. Uh, you're either going to get the information, the, the, the data, the, the footage on the hard drive or you're not. And all of your focus should be as a producer in what do I have to do to put the best clips, the best footage onto a hard drive that I can in post create a long you know, form film out of. And, but, um, by doing that, you're serving two things. You're serving the creative because you're you're really digging into the details of making decisions that most producers like to to sort of farm out to line producers. And you know, that relationship is fine. And, and a producer might say, well, this is a ten million dollar, an eight million dollar movie. And sure, you know. As you're sitting here, the line producer is going to come back with an $8 million budget because that's sort of the indications you gave to that person, he or she. And what you really need to focus on is how am I going to shoot the hockey sequence? Am I going to fill a stadium with extras and and get a Steadicam or, you know, on a guy on skates and float through this action? Am I going to get you know a third of the stadium and move them around and shoot it in pieces? How am I actually executing it? And then, what are the budgetary ramifications? And you can understand how to problem solve from there. You know, might be cheaper to get three hundred people six different T-shirts than it is to get you know uh, twelve hundred people. So, um, things like that, I guess, is my point: is if you really know the production plan, then the budget is startlingly obvious, um, and you can make real adjustments. So you can then go to a foreign sales company or to a domestic distributor, and they can tell you what. You know the 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 value of the film may be, and if you have to adjust it down, you have a really good sense of well, where can I do that, right. You know, right? and and put your film in a position to react to the to that market information and become successful.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah, I really appreciate that feedback, and I promised you that we'd we'd bounce around a little bit, and I want the audience to hear a little bit more about you and where you got your start and and why you fell in love with film. I know that. Uh, this all kind of started for you back in New Hampshire when you were about eight mm-hmm. years old. You saw the filming of On Golden Pond, uh, the mm-hmm. great Henry Fonda movie. And I'm curious, um, what was it about that experience? What, what did you see and what do you remember about the filming of On Golden Pond that caused you to fall in love with filmmaking? Well, there was two things
1: that struck me. The first was I uh, was very fortunate. Um, you know, I was uh, on the... Marine patrol boat, the police boat, and the town is super tiny that I grew up in anyway. And so, you know, and it was late 70s, early 80s, and and security wasn't a big thing. And so I was very uh, capable of walking around the sets. But I would spend uh, just about 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day, every day, in a tiny little broken down wooden boathouse with Henry Fonda. And watching him and his wife and the people around him and just sitting on a stool, you know, and, and only once or twice did I interact with him, but just, just be in the room was great. And it sounds sort of like a, I guess a sappy melodrama, you know, primetime soap opera sort of thing, but to see him coughing and wheezing and clearly physically breaking down and, and tired and. Uh, inside of the boathouse and then to just flip a switch and walk out and do scenes with energy and intensity and focus and clarity it just it made a real impact on the commitment to a craft and and understanding you know what it takes to put a story on the screen Uh, and so that was that was uh, something that it will stay with me forever and then uh there's something about all of us, everyone listening all of us uh there's something about the electricity and the buzz and the the uh however naive optimism of a production set you know and and everyone has their role and everyone knows what they're doing and there's a there's a there's a a little microcosm of a society there and and I got to see that and was drawn to it and understood that you know that's where I wanted to be, yeah. Uh... And, then, but, and then that plays against, of course, sorry to interrupt, but that plays against, of course, uh, you know, a childhood like everyone of in those days, epically great, you know, cinema mm-hmm. and going, wow, look, this is amazing. You know, uh, it's the type of movie they just don't really make anymore. It's, you know, it's too Wall Street's got too big a grip on the film industry for anyone to really care about good storytelling anymore. But, um, you know, uh Things like Jeremiah Johnson and and these huge epic films that, you know, were bigger than
0: life. and They don't really do that anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, I think one of the most amazing things about your story, uh, outside of just being in the room with Henry Fonda, which I think is amazing, and all the, you know, Catherine Hepburn and everyone, I, I, is that, it happened to be on golden pond. Like it could have been a movie that was terrible, right? <laughs> Your first experience yeah. could be a crew right. that was in conflict and things weren't going well. And you're like, Oh, I never want to get into the movie business, but yeah. you happen to be on that movie set. And it just, it's, it's a great film and it's, and, and what more could you ask for? I mean, what a pleasure, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's great. And you know, you have a story by the way, because a few years later uh, you find yourself uh not in new hampshire and you tell to me and i've i've talked about this that you have the greatest story on how to how you got to hollywood that i've ever heard and i was wondering if you don't mind i told you that you, you, we did when we had coffee <laughs> you told me that story and i just i was blown away and i was wondering if you would bless us with that story uh, well, on, in this conversation I guess. Well, that's sort of like i don't know uh,
1: um, sure, it's, uh, it is, you know, very, very fortuitous. But I was. Uh, it's amazing, yeah. In the late 80s, I was uh, often, I would go to Mardi Gras in Louisiana and I would work either, you know, as a cocktail server out in the floor of a dance club, or uh, later, uh, the last year or two, I would bartend. And while I was there, um, you know, I just worked a twelve-hour shift and and was headed home tired. And at the time, I smoked. And there was a guy across the street. And it's like nine o'clock in the morning, and he didn't have a light. And he asked me, "Hey, do you got a light?" So I crossed over, and we started talking. And we sat, ended up sitting together for about two two and a half hours at a little coffee shop named Caldy's uh, you know, people are playing speed chess in the background and poets are arguing about the, you know, the fate of humanity. And, and we're talking about my big dreams of writing and directing. And I went on and on about all the stuff I was going to make someday. And he never once really said, you know, what he did and, but had a, he was very interested and and then, you know, being young and uh, equally as dumb then as I am now, uh, just didn't think twice of it. And when he left, he handed me his business card and said, If you're ever looking for work, give me a call. And a couple weeks later, I was doing laundry and I came across the card again. And for the first time, I really looked at it. And it was senior vice president in charge of production at Paramount Pictures, <laughs> like the th- third guy on the rung. You know, it was like Sumner, the president, and then him in charge of all of production. And so, uh, amazing. through, through, um, even more miraculous sort of circumstances. Two weeks later, I was in Los Angeles with an old beat up Chevy citation that my family gave to me. And, and, you know, with my mismatched, uh, high water pants and bad blazer and short tie, short fat tie. And, you know, the whole trying to look professional, but failing miserably. And, and, you know, it was great because, uh, I got the golf cart tour with him around the lot and it was understood that I had sort of political cover and I was able to fail a lot without losing jobs. And, you know, sadly, I like everyone, I guess in their twenties and stuff, I made a lot of mistakes and, but I was afforded the ability to sort of just keep trudging forward and find a place in a new show or a new film or whatever the case might be. And eventually got my footing and did pretty well. And, you know, by the time I left, I was I was working for a guy named Bertrand Van Munster, and and you know he went on to do the Amazing Race and all that sort of stuff. And and uh, the first day I got to Paramount, uh, Zvi Small was the gentleman's name. He gave me some really great advice. He said photocopy everything, and so I did. And you know he put me in the early. Uh, days of that job, I was what's called a runner. Uh, and I would just take paperwork and run across the lot and memos and things like that. Cause it was, you know, before email was widely used and, and uh, every time I would get a agency deal or a finance memo or some contract, I would photocopy it. And to this day, I have, you know, examples of uh, all of that sort of paperwork from some of the best lawyers and the sharpest lawyers in the business working for Paramount and served me very well. It was sort of my, you know, film school education. Uh, but I focused a lot on the production side because, you know, I, I like everybody, you know, uh, had the ideas of directing and all that sort of stuff. And, and, um, you know, I, I would go in, in those days, I would drive over into the Valley after work and I would just leave my, Paramount credentials hanging out and I would just walk into random movie sets and little small studios and, and and just watch the production and learn. And I would there were times I would walk up to the director and just start asking questions, you know, on these small little million dollar, you know, Michael Dudakoff movies and stuff like that that sold overseas mostly. Mm-hmm. Um that kind of stuff, and but it was great. It was a real education, and and because of that, you know, uh, I didn't have a lot of personal success in those days beyond just working for Paramount. But um, man, I I went to school on the industry from the inside of a studio, and and those principles are what guide me to this day. You know, you see a two hundred million dollar Tom Cruise movie being you know, financed by Paramount, there's been an awful lot of work on pre-sales and carving out uh, territories and, and various other things long before that film gets greenlit. And and so those similar principles have guided me, but, you know, the industry, you know, financing films has sort of come around to that too. You know, I worked for uh, a very smart finance banker after I left Paramount and, and, you know, while Paramount gave me film school and education one-on-one, I got uh, an incredible um, finance slash economics degree, basically, uh, from a guy named Michael Bassick, who was a finance banker. And he was a, he was a brilliant finance mind. And he was at the forefront of really, um, you know, putting together the, the foreign pre-sales, the soft money, you know, in those days, Uh, you could rely on the federal uh, tax incentive as well. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, I got to learn all that from him. So I was very, very blessed. Uh, And, you know, my first, uh, you know, 17 years or sorry, 15 years in the business were um, super informative and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then the last nearly 15 now, uh, I've been applying all that and doing films for myself. Uh, That's great. But I, you know, um, like a lot of people, I have a real hard time working for somebody. And, <laughs> you know, real, and so uh, I, re- I recognize at a very young age that like going in and and trying to get work as a director, which involves a lot of um, subordination to other people and, and all that sort of stuff, just wasn't in my, it wasn't in my makeup. I was going to end up Getting fired from a lot of shows and getting a bad reputation. And, you know, I just, I realized I needed to work for myself. And, and once I started doing that, you know, I've done a handful of films now, I've green, just green light on myself. And, and, um, it's very liberating. Yeah. And I, I'm very thankful, by the way, very, very thankful for it.
0: Yeah. I, I love the, that story because it, when you connect it to the story from being on, on Golden Pond set. You know, I don't want to get too woo-woo about it, but it's this idea that from that moment you had put something out there that you wanted to do and it felt like the universe responded. And they literally Mm -hmm. put a person who could walk you into a studio, uh, not having gone to USC, not having gone to American Film Institute, not having gone to NYU, uh, not having gone to Yale, just walk in uh, from across the country. Which, by the way, in the version you told me, it was an adventure in itself—just <laughs> well, getting across the I country don't... and not having clothes with you and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I sort of skipped by all that part for the for the masses, I guess. They're not that <laughs> interested in my my hitchhiking tales to get there in time.
0: <laughs> right, because I think it's something we all can relate to. It's like, okay, if I really had to go. L- Literally across the country, and I didn't have a lot of resources. How would I do it? And it reminds me of a friend of the podcast, Rasheed Stevens, who uh, left from Atlanta to L.A. to uh, pursue his dreams of being a stand-up comedian and a, a comedic actor. And he got all the way to New Mexico and realized he left his wallet. <laughs> no way at home, and he ended up homeless in L.A. for like the first. Two or three months of his stay there, he just lived in his car, and he used to always joke that when you're homeless, you you look for women differently. And when you're homeless, the first thing you check is their teeth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're not you're not looking at any other body parts. It's like okay, mm-hmm. clean teeth. They're they're brushing. They use Crest. Great, let's talk. But mm-hmm. um, but he landed on his feet. So I think that's always a good story, like your story and his story. They're they're both these great stories of hey chasing your dream might hurt in the, in the short term, but at the end of the day, we all figure it out. For the most part, we seem to figure it out. He figured it out. You got there. Uh, you found a way to get there. You figured it out. And, uh, the main component to, I think also both stories is not just drive, but also your willingness to listen mm. and to take advice from other people. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned a few names, uh, just in that story, but I'm curious who was your mentor at Paramount? And did you have a mentor at Paramount? You know,
1: um, it's an interesting question. As much as I respect V Small, but he was a very busy guy, you know, and and our interactions were very minimal once I started. And I sort of, you know, forged my way ahead on grit and moxie and baloney and that sort of stuff. And um, I, I wouldn't say that there was any one person at Paramount, unfortunately, that was a mentor. Um, the experience, I guess in itself provided a lot of that, um, mentorship is actually something I've been getting into lately and realizing now that, um, it's one of the big things that's been missing from my first half of my career. Mm. And I've been, I've been seeking mentors and stuff, but, um, if the question is just in general, then I would tell you that, uh, I probably gleaned, um, the most, useful sort of, uh, mentor relationship from Mike Bassick, Mm -hmm. who, who's gone on to do, he's doing, you know, incredible things now. And, and, um, you know, I was sort of floating around with him when he was just sort of feeling his way forward and I was feeling my way forward. And,
0: and did he shut down, uh, Markedia?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, he's doing several things. Yeah. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. As I I know about him. Uh, I know you did quite a few films with him as well. The Ten, I think, it was one of them. Um, all before 2010, and it's it be it's. I, I think for this audience, you know, sort of understanding how important it is to have someone as a mentor. Mm-hmm. First of all, love what you said about getting into that because I think that's what the industry needs more of. First of all, it's a very shrouded industry. So it's very hard to chase the accounting. It's very hard to chase and understand what the rules are and who's making things happen and not, but it, but even more so when you have that mentor, you have somebody who can teach you a very, very specific thing. Um, and I think that's missing. So I, I love that you're getting into that. Yeah. And I, I think the interesting thing about Mike Bassick is that he taught you the money part of it. And the number one thing we hear back from independent filmmakers is like, if we say, Hey, what's the biggest challenge you're facing? They'll tell us, Oh, money. So, (laughs) so I think that was, that's a great mentor to have is somebody who could talk to you and help you understand the money because it's, it it seems to be, and tends to be the number one roadblock for independent filmmakers right now. Well,
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah. He taught me about money. Uh but he also I think I think bigger than just the money part was watching him uh building the structure, the the finance structure of a project in a way that was advantageous for the producers, the distributors and whatever investors were in there. Mhm. And building this, like this, he was really instrumental in teaching, I think, uh, probably a big chunk of the industry, how that's possible. You know, they're traditionally viewed as competing forces. Distributors want this. Producers want this. The money guys want this. And you have the, and it still goes on today. Believe me, most films are financed incorrectly. And, you know, probably 80% of all films are financed incorrectly. And and so, um, you know... But, but I think more than just you know the the money, but like how to make the structure work, and then this is I don't know how this will play with like the you know the Uber creative directors who are convinced that you know they're going to make life altering great film creative stuff. But um, he sort of put into perspective for me uh, a very simple truth, which is. Um, what makes a great film is not necessarily what critics might say, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, I would use a a parallel story and say uh, that the Sistine Chapel is probably the most viewed piece of art on the planet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is or isn't, but it's among them. Uh, And he died broke, you know, but, the number of people who have seen it is en- enormous, and to me, I think the bar, like the gauge of a really great film, isn't necessarily you know that everyone thinks *Raging Bull* has some sort of you know secret uh, to it that makes you know everyone think it's great. But um, I think I think a film which I don't even enjoy, but you know, a film like uh, *Forrest Gump* that has such a huge and broad audience, and so many people have seen it. Probably could be easily set, you know, stated as is a better film than than *Raging Bull*. And I know a lot of the creative, you know, intellectuals will turn their nose up to me. And I don't mean to dismiss *Raging Bull* by any means, but I think if you're fair and honest with what is the actual accounting that you would say that piece of art was successful, and I would think it is how many people enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, not not how many critics put it on a top 100 list, right? And it's it's, <laughs> <you> it's <know. laughs> there's a lot of interesting talk about that going on right now with the digital distribution market, where you know if your film is good enough to make it into the theaters, even on a small, let's say, limited run, you know you're going to at least garner you know between twelve and eighteen dollars a ticket nationwide, depending on what market your film plays in. But if you go straight to Streaming and you're not able to get a large deal from Netflix or Amazon or Apple Plus or whatever it may be, and you're on a services deal. You know, fifty thousand people could watch your movie. You could have a hundred thousand people watch your movie, and you make peanuts—literally mm-hmm. uh, less than ten thousand dollars—with you know five hundred thousand people having watched your independent film. And so, I think one of the problems you know, I know that I'm interested in solving and my partner Nick are interested in solving is, you know, how do we make products that, uh, that are market fits, right? I I can't think of any other business that's like film because if you make a, a candy bar, you know, (laughs) you sell it to the market for $1, you can bet the candy bar costs 10 cents to make, but in the movie business, it's, the candy bar costs a dollar and the market's only willing to pay 10 cents for it, or maybe even less in this model. So it's, um, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. It's a good point that you're making. And um, I, I don't have a dog in the fight when it comes to raging bull or, or Forrest Gump. I like both of them, but, but I think I, don't. I get your point com- completely. Yeah. 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 Um, I think they're both,
1: they both have, you know, merits of obvious merits and all that I was just was comparing because they're obvious ones a commercial hit and ones of, you know, sort of a critical hit. So, um, but I think, you know, I, I think that's indicative of the industry where we're at, uh, I think on a bigger scale too. Uh, I don't know how much longer big budget long form content really can be sustainable. Yeah. And there's people chirping about it, you know, and, and the obvious comparison is, You know, Netflix can't be sustainable as long as YouTube is there, right? Right. Um, Because you have, with Netflix, you have a billion users, and Netflix is paying $10 billion a year for content. (laughs) And for YouTube, YouTube has 10 billion, I'm just making up a number, I don't know how, but most of the globe, right? And, And they're paying zero for content, like literally zero. Right. And you see the drastic difference in viewership, like the hours consumed of YouTube and platforms like that compared to Netflix. It's like, it's not even, it's not even remotely close. And so regardless of the distribution medium, whether it's digital stream, all that stuff, I think is, is secondary to the truth. What is the consumption habit? I think I think we're ultimately, and I'm not saying say we're seeing the end of film, because I think there will always be a place for that, but I I do think that um, what we think of a traditional film is probably going to change, and that we'll see a lot more, you know, less than an hour episode. I think that's kind of why the binge-watching sort of habits are prevailing. I think feature film has to move in that direction and just either be that or not um which is perfectly fine for me you know uh the idea of a two-hour film was actually driven out of financial you know sort of pursuits and film has uh for most of its life like commercial film in america was like one hour films And, and, you know, that's why you would have the newsies and a couple of short films, and then you would have your feature film, and it may have been 40 minutes long with the, you know, Lone Ranger. And, and so I think, um, you know, the idea uh, that we go back to that isn't a very scary thing at all, and, and people who may lament the death of cinema are just misunderstanding, It's just going through a transformation, and that, you know, there'll always be a place for really good stories. And, and fun, engaging, primal stories that move us, right, in some way, whether it's through fear, uh, through, you know, uh, humor and drama and all that sort of stuff. There'll always be a place for that. We're, we're humans. We love it, you know, and, um we just have to sort of adapt to delivering the content in a way that people want to see it. The data, as I call it now, I'm so yeah. cold about it. It's, it's what there. it is.
0: It's, that's it the, is. It's that's data. the, that's the place we're going into. I yeah. just read a story about Oculus now forcing you to log into your Facebook account to use it. I mean, <laughs> the only person that likes the game is the gamer. Everyone else what needs the data. Oculus? It's a for virtual reality gameplay. Mm-hmm. So it's just this idea that, you know, you want to be alone in your house so you can play video, virtual reality video games, but that doesn't serve any business purpose to Facebook who owns it. So mm-hmm. um, they're going to they're gonna grab that data from you. Um, you, uh, at the very beginning of this conversation, mentioned that you are a producer, a director, and a writer, and that is certainly the case. Um, how do you decide which role to play in a given project? Uh, you know you have i well, think about 5 I'm, things in the pipeline right now how do you know whether it's right for you to be the writer right for you yeah. to be the director right for you to be the financer or the producer
1: i don't I which don't do know. you enjoy the most by the way okay I, well now we're into, now there's somebody talk for hours um well the first part of the the first question was how do i decide is i don't i don't know i was going to say that i don't think that i've ever really had to decide either projects have come packaged and i've financed them or i've you know started from scratch from a script and and packaged everything and and went and did it um mm-hmm. so uh, but i have decided actually i have a script that i wrote recently which i had been keeping pretty quiet uh called citizen down mm-hmm. um and you know it literally has come to fruition over the last you know 3 months like and it was uh you know it was sitting we had a we had a Denzel lined up to direct Denzel Washington mm-hmm. uh, had a an availability and you know we just were putting in the offer and things sort of broke with covid and then uh, this this unrest you know, the, the black lives matter issue. And it so directly parallels what happens in the script that it's sort of impossible to make it. And it will be for a while, I think. And, um, and so that, you know, but I, I made, the reason I brought it up was that was for the first time. So that was based on a short film idea I had when I was a teenager and it became the opening scene of citizen down, which, um, was basically uh, a young black kid, 19 year old kid is hitchhiking is picked up by a middle-aged white guy. And they bond over an old, you know, Motown tune realize they have a little more in common than they think, despite the age and, and culture and all that sort of difference. Uh, and there's this, you know, nice little moment, uh, but then the right front tire of the truck blows out and, and, the old timer gets control of the truck and it ends up on the shoulder of the road. You know, the gravel leading into like a two or three foot culvert. And he's the old timer gets down there and starts changing the tire and drops a lug nut under the truck. And he shimmies under to get it. And he knocks the jack out and the truck settles down and knocks the old timer out. And the young, the young kid puts his back against the wheel. Well, well, and he's holding the truck and he's lifting a little, but he's not lifting the full weight. He just, you know, how you can just sort of tilt the truck a little bit or mm-hmm. offset the weight so it doesn't crush the guy. And he's stuck there holding it. And we cut to uh, the inside of a state trooper. And, of course, the truck is being, there's an APB for the truck is being stolen. Mm. And and all day passes. And the guy, the kid is just like, he's white knuckled. He's got his feet dug into the ground. He's tired. And he's starting to like, you know, talk to the old timer. You got to get up, man. Like he doesn't have the strength to hold the, the balance of the truck and pull the guy out. And he's just stuck there. Of course, the trooper shows up and takes command presence and doesn't see anybody at first because the kid's head is over by the right front, you know, tire. Then he just sees the head looking over as he gets to the cabin of the truck and he draws his gun and there's a confrontation, and he shoots the kid.
0: Mm.
1: And so that was the not realizing he was trying to help the guy down below. Right. Only uh, the cop was shocked to realize, Oh, he's holding the truck up for this old timer. Um, but that was the opening scene. And, and a lot unfolds from there in a way that you have no, it, it is, um, story wise, uh, unlike anything we've ever seen. And I'll keep all those pieces, but, uh, the The backdrop of that world is a, is a group called Citizen Down, which is uh, the film's version of Black Lives Matter, um, but you know with less polarizing political sort of tint to it, um, and and you know can't make that movie right now. So, but I well, sounds it, incredible, and it was it was you know thirty plus years in the making of just in my brain, you know, and I had another this other story that I wanted to make, and I realized that this open was the setup you know and and uh the main story is about the mother of the son who dies in the beginning and uh, our lead who's a a young African American from you know inner city Detroit who goes to the police academy mm-hmm. yeah and and uh but I knew that I could not direct that you know even though it was a story I wrote um and has been in my mind for that long uh I just I don't think that uh, it would have been taken as seriously. Number one, number two, I think that the story is sort of incomplete, you know, uh, there has to be the right filmmaking team to, to breathe life into the bones I've put, I think. Right. And, and so that was a fairly, uh, it was an emotional decision to, to realize that I didn't, I could not direct it. Uh, but I'm the one who came to it all on my own, so that makes it a lot easier for me to accept it <laughs> right. than if someone had told me, like you know, you really can't direct this. Um,
0: so, but that is that to is say old... that that you enjoy directing the most, or
1: no? Uh, uh, you want to know the truth? I enjoy uh, producing the most. Interesting. Well, maybe writing now because writing is a new thing. Uh, for me which is probably too boring for your audience but maybe writing um but the reason i love filmmaking all of it writing directing producing all of it the the main thing that i enjoy the most is problem solving oh yeah i get and it's i think it started in 1988 i want to say or Somewhere around there, I was in Miami. This is before New Orleans. And I was got some work. Uh, Edward Montez was the name of the director. And he never went on to do anything. But he did seven music videos for Latino MTV, which was getting a big push from MTV in those days. Right. And he was making some music videos. And I sort of, for some reason, he took a liking to me. And I just ended up next to him the whole time through these f- – and and to see him, it was it, – it, I can't say for sure because I wasn't alive. But if you could imagine what it might have been like to be standing with, like, Chaplin or somebody in those days as they said, hmm, how do we get this shot? Well, if we make the house a third perspective and push it 18 feet beyond, we could slide it sideways. And while we – right, like that whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. So he was doing something very similar, and this is the moment that I realized that that this is the type of, and no I thought director, but really producer I wanted to be. Everything came to a halt, while they tried to figure out how to put a light inside of one of those old like square microphones, you know, for the singer, so that like shined on his face from inside the microphone. <laughs> right. And they had a welder, they had a carpenter, they had like all these union guys, and production stopped for like two hours. Everyone's literally nobody's moving. They're not like over by the crafts or like they're standing still, waiting, like right where we are. And finally, he goes, uh, you know, f the rules. Sorry for your audience. I don't know if that's allowed. It's allowed. Uh, <laughs> f the rules. He throws his you know with a clipboard down. He goes over and by himself, he just rips a big thing of gaff tape, and he 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 gaff tapes." a tiny little light and a cord all the way up inside the mic and just puts it on the outside and just says, we'll shoot around it. we won't even see the mic, the light on the mic and walked away. And the whole thing was solved in like three minutes. He got this great shot. And, and when I realized that, uh, that, that whatever you can imagine is possible, as long as you get what you're trying to go for, it doesn't matter if it's like, and it reminds me, and I use this story now a lot and I might've told you this story, but I'll, Share with the audience because most of them will know. But a reminder uh, that there's this great parallel to this, which is NASA spent millions and millions and millions of dollars researching how to get a pen to work in space in zero gravity, mm-hmm. so they could send you know get take notes and go things, and and became very frustrated. The do you know what the the Russians did? <laughs> What did they do? They sent a 59-cent pencil into space <laughs> and took notes with that, right? So the point is that a lot of – I, I, this is why I emphasize uh, so hard to get your production plan and get it figured out because the budget you think you have may not be the budget you need. You know, you might find a bunch of 59-cent pencils that you can make do with. There's another classic story. Well, I don't even know it's a classic story, but something I tell all the time. Um, J.J. Abrams did the reboot of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And – there was a bit in that film where they have to space dive from the Enterprise down to like a hovering satellite like satellite above this planet and the satellite is shooting like a beam into the planet it's going to blow up the planet and they like sky they space dive down do you remember that little sequence mm-hmm. well they space dive down they land on the thing and they fight the bad guys save the day but they went to shoot that and the, keep in mind, this is like a hundred and fifty million dollar budget. It would have been super easy to do a whole. There's, I can think of five really expensive ways to make that shot really beautiful, like the close up of the the guys skydiving down, space diving down, right? You know how they got the close up? Huh. They went into Big Blue, which is a parking lot uh, at Paramount. They put a ten by ten mirror on the ground. They had the actor in in costume stand on the mirror and. Put their hands up to the sky and look up to the sky as though they're skydiving up, <laughs> and they put the camera at a bird's eye view, and they shot it. And there's the blue sky in the mirror, and the and they blew some wind on them, and they acted like they were skydiving, but they were standing on the parking lot looking up in the sky. Probably took yeah, probably took like four hours to get all the little isolated close-up face shots, you know, with the cloud reflections and stuff. Done. Yeah. I love it. So that sort of stuff is what turns me on the most. I love, I love getting in there and finding, you know, good shots. And, and then, and then, you know, uh, something else that a lot of people probably won't like about me is I really love the language of film, that the relationship between the filmmaker and the viewer Hmm. and there's a history that we all are adding to, a long, sophisticated, beautiful history where we come to expect something. There's some really simple ones that everyone knows: the high tense music, a low, panning camera angle towards a curtain. What's going to happen? Something's going to jump out from behind the curtain, or some right. It's going to be some like jump scare, right? Yes. That's a jump scare. Okay, mm-hmm. we get it, but that's part of the language. There's a whole world of that where we can use the mise en scene, right? What we see in the in in the scene from the artwork and the character and the way we frame it and where the camera is positioned, all of that has a historical relevance to the viewer that we can use an unspoken way to t- help tell the story. Right? And I I love that. I love that there's that history. It's not. I love that there's not a cold interpretation each time of, of random stuff. And I like being a part of that. I like to think that Spielberg standing and making decisions to get finally, finally, finally get, you know, the last shot of Jaws done correlates to, to uh, a lot of us standing and, and working on our final, final shot. And, and, you know, being a historian, being a student of film is paramount to success. Like if you don't know the history, you know, you're probably in big trouble on storytelling for this reason alone, for buys on scene and all that sort of stuff. But also look, if you don't know the history of how financing has worked or how, you know, casting or how legal relationships work, you're in a bad spot. You know, even if it's just negotiating your own deal, like I tell people this all the time, like direct people like, well, I'll never finance a movie. I'm just a director. And I just, I'd like to tell them, well, listen, anytime that you're sitting at a table negotiating and somebody and the people on the other side of the table know more about the business than you, you're already at a disadvantage in that negotiation. You already are. And, and so,
0: you know, I've seen that.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, I, I love that. But I love that part of the business. And I like directing a lot. Uh, you know, um, I like being on the spot and everyone, you know, uh, buying into a vision and, and getting that you know, hopefully getting the leadership to get that team moving in the right direction and get all the stuff we need and to have the, to bring the vision and to be the one to get to decide that is very
0: rewarding creatively. Right. A director um, is a problem solver as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, in a different way, but yep. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. You, yeah. you mentioned, um, there's a lot to dig into there, so thank you for that. There, that's that's good stuff. You've mentioned a lot of movies, you've mentioned a lot of people um, along this uh, conversation, and so I'm curious which creatives y- y- you most admire. Because you mentioned you're uh, um, a film buff, uh, you love film history, you know your stuff, and so you probably have a vast sort of memory of creatives to pull from here. But if you had to sum it down to one or two, uh, I'm curious. Uh, which creatives do you most admire and most want to want to emulate and what do they do from a technical it's or such a skill standpoint question. to set them apart? Even this, this, what should be a totally reasonable
1: conversation is so it's like, it's uh, in today's climate, it's a very dangerous conversation, but, um, I, the good news for me though is, um, and this is also not very popular, I'm sure with your audience, but, uh, I, the guys that I think are really uh, the top are Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we continue to, uh, we still to this day, all form films are informed by um, some of the thing, the stuff, the ground that he laid. You know, uh, some of the story mechanics and and you know that sort of stuff are still used to this day and and are such a huge part of that language I was talking about. Um, and you know, I guess a polarizing one is I'm not a huge fan of his later stuff, but you know, you, you couldn't probably name for me anyway, for my 10 bucks a pop, but you probably couldn't name a better, you know, first seven film sort of run than Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. Um, a got a new story. book out, yeah. You know, I, I, I've sort of uh not been super enthralled with a lot of his stuff in the second half. You know, he's gotten into a lot of his personal ideology stuff, which is great, you know, for everyone to do, but um, aren't these great titans of you know, story film, you know? But um, but uh, yeah, you know, I you know, Spielberg, you can't go wrong. He's mm-hmm. a great sto- great storyteller. Uh, I'm pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty easy. I don't have any like super secret, you know, turn of the century Russian. To, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, that's, I like all that stuff. Uh, I enjoy films like that. I just, it's not who I am. And I, I'm sort of, I want to be a common man sort of filmmaker that, you know, makes stuff we can all actually today, like right now, like my, my shift in my career is very family friendly but i i think of it less like family friendly and more i want to make a movie that like an 11-year-old
0: boy and his dad could sit down and watch together and really like and enjoy yeah and there's a market for that and i think there's not enough of that probably especially yeah. dad yeah. and son yeah that yeah. that very specific group not that i'm
1: anti mother daughter or anti women and i'm i'm i have been Uh, you know, vocal about gender equality and, and all that sort of stuff uh, and racial equality and representation in film. And, and by no means does my, I just want to be clear because it's the times we live in that that statement isn't that that's all I care about. But, but I think that that's what focused for me now because it's, it is an underserved thing. And, and there's a lot of, you know, great content for single 22 year olds to, you know, be get a thrill with and, and all that. But, uh, I'd like to, I'd like, you know, so I'm working on this Davy Crockett thing, which even though I say all that, um, is more, you know, really hard PG 13s more, uh, it's going to be more Revenant meets, um, hostels than it will be the old classic Disney, right. You know, cheesy Davy Crockett. It'll be, it's got some, some darkness to it, but all in all it's PG 13 and, And reinforces good human values for everybody, regardless of all of our identities, you know, and, and stuff that we can all just say, let's just be cool. You know, let's be cool with each other.
0: (laughs) I enjoy it. You know, we have listeners of this podcast in Germany, in the UK, in Australia, in India, uh, South America, Canada, uh, of course the U S but all over the world. And, and I know that uh, you're an international traveler. I know you went to Latvia last year. I'm curious, how is the independent film or film community different, let's say in Europe or overseas than, than here, if, if you have any clue to that? Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> uh, it's different in
1: one very simple way. Um, all of the films that are, uh, well, let me, let me take a sidestep first. Um, you mentioned earlier that, like, an independent film has a hard time making a dollar, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I would—without ha- identifying any particular film, I would probably first say, um, were they good films? Were, the, were people really wanting to watch them, you know? I think a lot of movies get made, um, and, you know—but uh, that aside, um, unlike here, there really is— there is no uh, independent market um, in most like take Europe, for example.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, Europe is, is in film a very uh, exclusive. It's, it's sort of 40 years behind America in this sense that it's still a very exclusive closed group of people that influence not just the money, because money's money you know, there's a lot of money in the world Um, but influence uh, the jobs that get recognition, that get sort of pushed, that get uh, greenlit that get made and then get seen it's a very closed controlled uh, market still. In America there's, you know look, I could make a uh, and I've done this, The you know Uh, you can make a micro budget movie and do real well for yourself and find your own audience in America. Like, like that's the beauty that is getting lost. I think in the current discussions across America is if you've got a good movie, people are going to find it. People are going to find it. People are going to find it. Like I've seen, uh, you know, everyone from Spielberg and Tom Hanks all the way down to my next door neighbor, acknowledging one simple truth you can spend all the money you want marketing a movie. You can spend uh, $300 million marketing John Carter, which they did, and nobody will go see it. Mm. But word of mouth has and will always be the number one marketing form for a movie. Right. And nobody has ever come to like a job. Like, no number one, goes one
0: marketing form form for anything. Just about because because I've always said this, Derek. If if you're gonna if I tell you something about a woman or or let's reverse it, let's say one woman tells another woman something about you that's negative, no matter how much she wants to (laughs) to talk to you, she might not. Uh, Just based on that word of mouth that you. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are definitely yeah word of mouth is super powerful.
1: Yeah, Um, I like to use a, a different analogy. I say. You know, uh, when was the last time you went into work, hung around the water cooler and told someone about a movie you
0: didn't like? Mm-hmm. Maybe
1: never, you know, but.
0: Well, they do that. They did that with cats. <laughs> well, th- that was because it was funny to and, just rank And then up it becomes a so, thing. Because, it becomes, you're right. It becomes funny <laughs> to tell tell people how bad it is, which is which which let's be honest. That was probably good for cats.
1: Probably probably saved them some money.
0: for Right. Sure. Right. They people uh-huh. had to watch it to confirm. Oh, it really is as bad as so and so says.
1: Yeah, and so the word I guess uh, that's one big difference is that the market is very closed still. There's not, you know, um, if you don't, for example, if you don't get like a, a good premier exhibition location mm-hmm. in as a French film, you're probably not going to do very well here. It doesn't matter as much, but you have to have the right theater with the right people attending and the right press and the, you know what I mean? Right. And, and so though that's a big difference. The other big difference is, um, there's not the there there's a it, thankfully still and each new generation seems to be eroding this but there's a sense of of um, capability and self-sufficiency still in America where you know what I'm, I live in America I can just go do it like let me just do it and I'll make someone go by. I'll like. I'll make a good movie. I'll get my iPhone. Like they're making some. Like I know it sounds ridiculous, but they're making some incredible stuff on the iPhone Four Max Eleven or whatever it is, ten or eleven.
0: 11, I think. 11 Pro, yeah.
1: It's crazy. It's a four. I have one. It's a four K camera, you know. And obviously, the lensing and all that sort of stuff is a is um, inhibits traditional sort of decisions. But you've got a tool that's magnificent and, and use the tool. Uh, I forget who made it, but I recently saw, I think Apple did a promo for the max 11. It called vertical filmmaking or something. And it was, Mm -hmm. a. I saw that. Yeah. It was a prominent director. I forget the kid's name. I think he won an Oscar for short movies or something. And he did this fantastic, uh, short film that went through the all the major eras in, in Hollywood history. And with the artwork and, you know, production design and with the camera and all that sort of stuff, sort of replicated the time period and all the way up to modern times. And it was beautiful. It was really well made. It was super beautiful. And there were some shots in there that aesthetically I was like, oh, my goodness, we could have never gotten this on a traditional format like like you would have never gotten the feel of this shot like there was a he did this great shot framed at a doorway
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and you just wouldn't get the same you would still no matter how you tried to cut it it would feel compressed
0: right the aesthetic wouldn't be the same Uh, this just felt like
1: tall and long and like it was perfect it was a great shot and i thought to myself that sort of was like you know what maybe there's some new parts of that language of film There's some new words here, you know, there's some new tools, there's some new visuals that we can use. And I just think, I think it's a super exciting time. A lot in the way that you're seeing Grammy artists just record in their, you know, bathroom with their little laptop, you know, iMac or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, and film is a very similar place now where if you just, if you have some talent, you have a good story that people want to see like that's always going to be the key is it a good story yeah you no know, because you can you can like what's this thing uh i already i can even already tell but the one with Shia LaBeouf, it's in theaters now mm-hmm. and people were giving him flag it was called the tax collector mm-hmm. if there's ever a movie that's just sort of going through the motions it's not going to have any heart you can just tell looking at it. it's like really it's like you didn't even try to be Guy Richie. You weren't even that interesting to try to, to like aspire to that. You were still just, do you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, yeah. It's like, really?
0: And I love. It. I think Shy is the most talented guy going. He's and, so he's so real. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. He's he figured it out. He he yeah. walked through he walked through the fire and came back. Uh, yeah. He he, had, he he had one of those Robert Johnson moments somehow. Mm-hmm where he went away for a little bit and, did, and whoever he was at Disney is gone forever. Yeah. Uh, and We're he's
1: fine because I think he's the best artist out there myself.
0: Yeah. He's, he's really doing it. Um, you've been so awesome with your time, Derek. You're, you're just a pleasure to talk to. You. I learned something. I learned several things every time we, we do get a chance to chat. Uh, I only have a few more questions. Are you, are you still good? Yeah, sure. You, uh, Perfect. That You mentioned producing being your love and uh, that problem-solving piece. So there are producers that listen to this and producers that we've interviewed before. And I'm curious, if you had one month to teach someone how to be a, uh, let's say, a passable producer, an adequate producer, what are the first three things you would teach them?
1: First three things? Mm-hmm. Like the first three things for people who have no...
0: Right, Let's starting just, you're just taking somebody off the street. Say, hey, I got a month to make you into a producer that uh, can can be successful.
1: Um, I would probably take 25 of the 30 days and have them watch, uh, you know, four movies a day. Wow! Uh, and then the last five days, I would talk about what they saw in the movies and how did the people get to that. And because the role of a, like to teach someone to be a producer is really easy. Hmm. Like I I can, I can give you the whole role of a producer in like a 10 second description. You ready? I'm ready. Have you ever been to a street fair? I have. Okay. Producing is like doing a street fair every day for three months. You have to make sure that all the facilities are there. There's security, the vendors are have all the things you had to plan for that day, but not just do that every day for six, you know, Six weeks. Right. That's a producer. Plan everything you need to be where it needs to be on time. That's it.
0: That's it. That's beautiful. So first thing, it sounds like heavyweight heavyweight on knowing how films work. So you're watching all these movies. What do we
1: need at the street fair and why? That's all going to be like, I can't teach anyone that. Like, go look at the movie. Like, Uh, here's the movie. Here's the movie. Okay, well, look what look what Scorsese did. He got he got in the ring with the camera. Let's go back to Raging Bull. Instead of just showing a fight, he made us the fighter for the first time. We got in there. We were like, it was violent. We could feel the concussive of the blows in the sound. Right, great. What do we need on set to make that happen? Yes, got that's producing like super simple. So the first, so that would be, so that's two. I get one more thing. Yes, Um, um, uh, I would sell them, um, worry. I would just tell them that the, the financing needs to be based on having a very specific, clear plan, knowing what your actual budget is, then doing the work to, uh, get a company to sell the film for you, a foreign sales company, monetize that, monetize the soft and try to make the equity investment as low as possible.
0: I love it. I love it. Derek, I know you don't uh, necessarily... Spend a lot of time on social or on the internet, and uh, we will honor that uh, on this podcast. But I will say for those listening, uh, you can watch some of the films Derek has been involved in. Uh, he has a film called The Ten with Paul Rudd and Jessica Alba. Of course, The Kids Are All Right, which was nominated for four Academy Awards and won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture. Uh, he directed The Love Guide. It's another film called airtight and you can go to imdb.com and actually just look up Derek Purvis and you will find all the films he's been a part of. And uh, he has five projects uh, uh, that he's working on now, three of which uh, he is the writer on. Uh, He's got the David Crockett film. You guys heard about, uh, heard him talk about earlier. Savage Savage
1: lands. Yeah. Savage lands. We're shooting that next spring. Uh, That's awesome. we're gonna, yeah, we're shooting in, in eastern Tennessee, but uh, we'll use the Smoky Mountains, we'll use the Cumberland Plateau, and then I think uh, we'll do a couple of soundstage days in Nashville.
0: I love it, man. That's great. And if you come to Nashville, I definitely will link up with you there. I'll, I'll have to make sure I we, we can do that. Um, I know by that. By you... the way, we're hiring as
1: much local as we
0: can, of course, for the Ooh. tax certificate. Okay, um, okay. You know,
1: um, I can I tell you the history of the Savage Lands.
0: Yeah, please.
1: So, um, you know, when I first came to town, uh, I we left Los Angeles about three years ago now. And the first two years we were in Nashville, we left uh, Los Angeles and the first people I started meeting with were local bankers just to see, cause I was semi-retired. I, I was going to go raise my kids and, you know, we were, we were sort of settling down to do the family thing. And, but I, I went and had some meetings with, you know, Andrew Kins at, at what used to be called first Tennessee's now, I guess the first horizon, mm-hmm. um, and other entertainment divisions and banks about their appetite into lending into film. And I started meeting with, you know, local production groups and trying to meet as many of the, the people working as I could. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was meeting with Bob Reigns, you know, and just <laughs> sort of feeling my way around. And, and a couple of times he sort of you know, made the direct ask, like, are you going to shoot something here? What are you going to do? What do you got? What are you working on? You got to make a movie here? You know, it's his job to get movies to be made here. And for the first four or five meetings, I was like, no, I don't have anything really planned. I, you know, I've got this and that, but they don't really fit. And and then finally I was at the Pinewood social, we were having lunch and he asked me again, what are you shooting here? And I, without even ever thinking about it, i would never once thought about it beforehand. I just off the cuffs, like, you know, I was thinking about making a Davy Crockett movie and his eyes lit up, you know, and he was like very supportive and, and, you know, uh, as always very informative and all that sort of stuff. Uh, great resource for, you know, all the filmmakers and stuff. Um, And so then on the, because based on his reaction on the way home, I thought to myself, well, I guess I better write a script. And so, (laughs) so I wrote Savage Lands and it got such good coverage and, you know, several agencies have, have, you know, covered it and, and are, you know, working on casting and on the packaging with me and uh, been very excited and blessed. And, and it's, uh, it's unlike any, you know, sort of Davy Crockett material that anyone's ever seen. It'll be very, uh, it'll feel very contemporary in the sense of, you know, the storytelling language and, you know, the scene work and the music and, you know, production value and all that. Uh, But also it has, you
0: know, classic timely stories and stuff. Savage lands. Yep. Check it out. Uh, I'm super pumped for it. And Bob Rains is uh, a great guy. We're hopefully going to have him on this podcast very soon. Uh, So looking forward to that. And and maybe he'll tell us a Derek story. Um, One last question as we, as we wrap up. And again, to the audience, do do look out for for Derek's stuff. Uh, even more stuff in the pipeline than he even mentioned on on this call and in this conversation. Uh, but one last question as we wrap up. I know that um, you've mentioned several times in this conversation just the times we're going through. The 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 t- you've s- sort of said it that way. The times, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will. We've got you know from in the last. 12 calendar months of we've seen it all from Jeff Epstein to a pandemic mm-hmm. to riots in the streets to um y- you know, you name it, uh Ghislaine Matthews. Yeah. You know, this this whole this whole thing, it seems like Trump and um and the left and the division that's being created in the in the world right now. And I know you have a quote Uh, the absurdity of identity politics is crushing normal Americans beneath a tidal wave of vitriolic hatred. And I'm wondering if you can leave this audience with a message of togetherness and a message of, of hope going forward.
1: Uh, It's really simple and it's not my message, but I'll, I'll try to paraphrase a lot of much smarter people throughout history. Um, One of the great things about being human is there are so many different iterations of cultures and ideas and uh, personalities, and we used to relish in our differences. We used to love that that there were people who danced differently or that, that people who made food differently, and we would scour the world trying to taste everyone's food and dance everyone's dance. And we don't do that anymore. It's been totally reversed. By whatever force, I don't know. I really, I shun to, to publicly talk about this outside of the 12 people I'm connected to on Facebook, you know. But um, I just, I think it's super important is there isn't one that's right or wrong or better or worse. It's not left versus right. There's this absence of acknowledging the beauty and all the differences in the world. And I wish that we would refocus and emphasize on that. Um, that is one part. If you're talking about, you know, uh, politics and what unifies us and all that, then then I would tell you that um, this country is in exactly the same place as the moment the founders started talking about what they were going to do to form a country. Literally, like this is like history has been drastically underserved in our education system, but the truth is, like. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were talking about left versus right ideology while they were deciding what to put in the Constitution. Wow. Yeah. And it's been like, you know, the Federalists, which became the Republicans, you know, and, right. and then Andrew Jackson forming the Democrat. Like it's been since the birth of our country, these two ideologies. And I think that they work in a symbiotic way. I think that we have, we no longer trust that there'll be ebb and flow and we allow the media to exploit fear and all this for their own ratings and stuff. And the truth is, there's a lot of good things on the left like liberalism, there's a lot of great things. There's a there's the notion that all people deserve to be treated equally and have their place in society. Wonderful. No one disagrees with that. There are things on the right where there's, you know, family values and and you know, fiscally conservative government so that they don't impose on our freedoms and we don't have stormtroopers coming in to tell us we have to wear a mask or whatever it is. What like all those things like this country is built on that sort of symbiotic relationship between the left and then the ebb and the flow. Mm-hmm. And we should trust and just trust in that a little more. It, 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 we'll find our center. Like that's the whole point is, is we don't have to really, we have to stop doing certain things, but there's nothing we have to do to create unity. Like, like, um, you know, simple. And and look, and if we don't know by now that you just have to stop teaching hatred to each new generation, whether it's, racial hatred, whether it's, you know, gender or classism or whatever that is, like, we just got to stop teaching hatred. That's it. Sorry, I can go yeah. for like three hours about that. So you open we'll, a,
0: we'll, a we'll big take,
1: thing. We'll <laughs> Some other time. We'll, we'll do three hours yeah, we'll take ahead.
0: we'll take that one offline or, or over cocktails, and I would be fascinated about it because I'm uh, much like you. I'm a history buff as well. I love to read and and um, mm. have these meaningful conversations. But I, I'm right with you. I tell people it's really quite simple. Uh, step outside your house. Go talk to a person and just find out how wonderful they really are, and you'll find out okay. all the stuff you see on. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know this about me, Derek, but I'm a I'm a, a double majored in journalism and in marketing. And the thing I learned in journalism school was uh, how to frame a story, in that to make the news, it has to be exceptional. And what I think the layperson misses out on is that if they're seeing it, you have to ask why are you seeing it why was this promoted why is this at the top of the newsreel and then secondly if it's happening know that it cannot by the rules of journalism it cannot be common it has to be the exceptional or it won't make news and that's the difference so derek i'll leave it at that I think we can get off our soapboxes. We've made the world a better place. We've helped so <laughs> many filmmakers across everyone. the world. No, 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 no apologies needed. We've helped filmmakers across the world get closer to realizing their dreams. And I'm proud of that. So Derek, take care of yourself. Be safe. Best of luck in all that you do. And uh, thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. Bye. All right, Derek. Be good. Bye. You've been listening to the make it podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It, Banzai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on book us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain until next time. Be better, be creative, be engaged. And thank you, for listening.